HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Fiji Water and Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. Hey, Food Radio listeners. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie, and I'm really excited to share that we're launching a brand new show. Meet and Three is HRN's weekly food news roundup. Tune in for a deep dive and three tasty shorts every Friday evening. It's 15 minutes, so you can listen while you wait for your pizza. This week, the fight for universal free lunch in New York City public schools isn't over yet. I'm overburdened. I'm overworked. I don't get staffed when people are out. Plus, Dana Cowan, former editor of Food & Wine magazine and host of HRN's Speaking Broadly, catches up with Valerie Lomas, the winner of the Great American Baking Show's Derailed Season 3. Discover how a Danish brewery is motivating people to get fit and hear Alison Roman speak to the highs and lows of her cookie recipe going viral. Every time I see anyone in a social setting, that's generally the first thing they ask me is, how are the cookies? Be better informed and wildly inspired by the stories and people you hear on Meet and 3. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. And today, I am excited to have as my guest someone who is a game changer, life changer, badass, and was a yeast engineer. I mean, I guess that's like very important in the food world. I can't wait to hear more about that. But my guest is actually none other than the executive director of Heritage Radio Network, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Welcome, Katie. Hi, Dana. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. I mean, the two of us spend some time together seated side by side, but never with headphones on. So I'm, I'm very glad to have this experience. And it was a little bit out of body because the um, the ad that precedes the show is you talking <laughs> and then about you. <laughs> so now we can like, we can talk in person. Um, you know, this show is all about, um, 
talking to people who have had great successes and overcome challenges in their careers and their lives and taken sort of unpredictable paths. Because I think the unpredictable path is the most interesting one and the one from which we can learn the most. And you are now the executive director of HRN, but your your path here, I know, was um, was a wiggly one. It certainly was. <laughs> <laughs> and so I would just love um, for you to tell the listeners and like, what was that? What was that path? And what's this about being a yeast engineer? Um, okay, so uh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, if you asked me when I was five, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, I didn't know there was such a thing as a nonprofit food radio station in a shipping container inside a pizza (laughs) restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Uh, So I probably would have told you that I wanted to be a veterinarian or a doctor. And um, I'm not I'm not sure I'm seeing like the connection, but you'll have to help me with that. It will become clear. So, um, okay, so here was the deal. I um, I grew up in a home where we really, um, you know, we're taught to care about good food and um, to really appreciate kind of where food comes from. And through that, I was I was always really interested in health and well-being. And I, um, you know, as somebody who like I actually enjoyed school, I did well in school. And the thing to do if you like do well in public school is that then you go into the professions. And so it sort of felt natural, like, okay, well, maybe I want to go to medical school and be a doctor. But then I had this thinking always about food, and I became really interested in how the food system affects public health. So I had this like uh, grand plan of becoming a family practice doctor with a focus on integrative medicine and nutritional coaching and I, like uh, I did vision. all these that's things. A, that's a pretty great vision, actually. And it seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what happened was, though, I, um, I, you know, throughout my high school and college times, I, I worked in restaurants. I was really interested in being hands-on with food. I also worked as a receptionist in a naturopath's office to kind of get that like integrative medicine angle. And then I, um, I went to college. I went to Middlebury College in Vermont, which is a liberal arts school where you have these things called distribution requirements, <laughs> oh, which rats. makes it really <laughs> hard to like pick something when you already don't really know what you're doing. Uh, so that just <laughs> seems really unfair, you know, having gone to Brown where um, there is the opposite. Like you can do anything. So all I did was uh, write for four years, which I loved, but, um, and I guess you could say maybe it prepared me for something, but I'm not so sure. I I would say it probably had something to do with being the editor of a pretty important food publication. um, So, well, for me, Middlebury was like, you, um, it wasn't like you can do anything. It was like, you have to do everything. So I, uh, I was really interested in anthropology. I also, so I minored in anthropology in Spanish and I was pre-med, but their pre-med's not a major. But you are such but, like, I wanted to. No, I just like, didn't know what I was doing. And then I really wanted to study abroad. And basically at the end of the day, the only major that I could actually do and graduate in four years was molecular biology and biochemistry. And I can't even tell you like how intimidated I was to be doing that. And uh, it was really hard. I uh, I always had done pretty okay in school, at least in public school in Maine. Uh, but then uh, organic chemistry just about did me, and I had never failed an exam before, and like I really failed several. Um, and I, I just several, struggled through that. Oh, it was yeah. really bad. I barely got through it. So um, what did you do? Because you know I'm always interested in failures, like yeah. one of my <laughs> personal obsessions. But um, when you failed us. I, at Brown, when you fail a test, you just take the thing pass fail and hope the rest of them you pass. Mm-hmm. Um, but how did you overcome that feeling of like, 
oh my God, I'm never going to, like, I'm just never going to get out of this hole. It was really hard. Um, Middlebury's a school that's very, like, conscious of grade inflation at other schools and everything in organic chemistry was graded on a curve. And at Middlebury, you're supposed to be happy with a B and I never was. And then I was scraping by with like a C minus in organic chemistry. And it was really hard. I'd never felt that way before. And it wasn't like I was staying up all night studying. I was really trying and I just couldn't understand why I didn't get it. Um, And it was super humbling. And then at a certain point, like that just kind of made it so that like, okay, well, you know, I don't even really have a choice. Like I can try to change majors, I guess, if I want to be summa cum laude and and, like do all the things, or I can just let it go a little bit. Like it's not the end of the world. At the time, I still thought I was going to med school and I was still going to make it like it was still okay. And um, I had to just kind of chill a little bit in a way that I never had before about grades and and all life of that, lesson, right? Yeah, it was yeah. just like you know, you you may not be good at everything, and that's okay. And um, it, it was fine. It was fine. I lived, and then I like <laughs> somehow I got an A in PCHEM, where I really felt like I didn't get it at all. And you know, you never know. Like sometimes it's uh, one of those things. I think I forget what the uh, what's the name of the effect where if you think you're really good at something, you're probably not. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I had a. I had a humbling moment, but I was still on track to finish and go to med school. And so, you know, I, I did all the things. I studied abroad and I did medical internships in Ecuador and Argentina. And I um, shadowed some family practice doctors in Vermont. And I was, you know, getting involved in volunteering with um, like translating at a medical center. And so I felt like I was really getting immersed and, and getting excited. And then I was finishing senior year and I was like shadowing a family practice doctor at Porter Hospital in Middlebury. And I just had this sinking moment where I realized that when you are a practicing family physician in the U.S., you only have a couple of minutes a year with most of your patients. Wow. And during that time, you're doing a million things and you're trying to check up on their wellness in all aspects of their life. But I just realized one day, I was like, this is not realistic that I'm going to have a 30 second conversation with somebody about food and they're going to change their whole life around that. I was like, this is not a realistic plan. So I had this kind of crisis and uh, I was graduating and everybody else in my lab like already had a job. And here I was being like, I think I don't want to go to med school right now. And so I decided to wait a year to apply And I was graduating with a degree in molecular biology biochem and I needed a job and it was really crazy. Uh, I had never felt like that lost feeling uh, because I had had this really clear plan. That sounds so scary, right? It was terrifying. Graduation and everybody else is like, yeah, of course their life is on schedule, but Mm -hmm. mine just got derailed by this gigantic thought, which is I don't want to do what I've just spent all these years preparing for. And I couldn't even admit that, that I really didn't want to do it. I just felt like... Well, maybe I just need to think about it. Maybe maybe I still want to. I just couldn't let go of that because you put so much into preparing. And the whole reason I had this degree was because of that. And so there I was just like completely like coming up on graduation. Like what even is going on? I was applying to jobs. Uh, I, I like uh, was accepted for a job as a basically a camp counselor in California at this like hippie school where you would like take the kids on nature walks and. I was never going to pay back my student loans <laughs> on that. And then out of the blue, um, I got 
contacted, I, I basically got recruited to a, a biotech startup in New Hampshire. They had contacted um, my advisor at Middlebury, and she was like, yeah, there's only one student in my lab who doesn't have a job, so why don't you talk to her? So uh, I went to There's an a interview. way to feel successful. I mean, was like, You're well, the last one to be picked for the softball team. We have team. one option for you. Yeah. Um, so I was like, okay, well, I really, I don't, I was like, I don't want to work in biotech, but I'll go for a practice interview. This will be a good thing. Um, so I like got in my car and I drove to Hanover and I like had, I had prepared, but uh, the problem that the thing that happened that was really intimidating was they sent me a few uh, like academic papers to read, to prepare, but try as I might, I could not for the life of me understand what this company was doing. Hmm. And so I was like, I don't even know, like, this is going to be a disaster. Why was that? So, uh, well, I, I got terrible communicators would be the first thing. I mean, well, it so it was fault. kind of a little, like, it was a little bit of a joke. So I got there and like, that was one of the first things they asked was, what do you think we do here? <laughs> so I like faked it with something and they're all kind of laughing. And it turns out the the reason is that they couldn't publish anything because everything they were doing was trade secret. So everything they had out there was super vague. So I was just like, I think it's something about antibodies and <laughs> yeast. And so I, I really thought that I bombed the interview. Um, but it, it turned out that I guess I did okay. And they offered me a job. Um, so I had planned to stay there for one year and, uh, I accidentally stayed a little longer cause it was a really, really cool job. Um, this is turning into a long story, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm fascinated only because it just shows so beautifully how even if you don't have a plan, a plan can come for you as long as you sort of do the work, right? Like if you hadn't been in that lab and you hadn't impressed the professor, they would have said, we have no one. There's one <laughs> There's one loser who doesn't have a job, but I wouldn't recommend her. Yeah. And instead, you're an awesome person for them. And it just, you know, life can actually um, provide the answers as long as you put the work in. And you go show up, right? Mm-hmm. If you're like, well, that sounds like a dumb job and, you know, I don't want to work in biotech, then that also wouldn't have worked out well. So I feel like there's lots of lessons here. And I also feel like, um, you know, your path to heritage and this august position you now hold, and you've done so much in that job, I feel like somehow it ties back to, you know, being incredibly flexible, being very well prepared, um, you know, being open to things that present themselves and not being judgmental and saying like, I don't, I don't want to, or I don't care. So some amount of just being open to the universe, even if you ended up being a yeast engineer. So, <laughs> but why did that turn out to be interesting and what did they actually do? Okay. So this was actually incredibly cool and I'm going to be a total nerd for a minute. Um, so what this company was doing was they had taken essentially all the DNA that makes up your human immune system and they put it into yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is uh, brewing yeast like you would use to make beer. And, uh, there's the food connection. Uh, it is. It is. Um, a lot of my colleagues, interestingly, were really into baking and brewing. Hmm. Um, so we created uh, basically a synthetic human immune system so that you could um, throw different things at it to discover actual like human antibodies to provoke an immune response to different targets. So a lot of the work that we were doing was trying to find new antibody drugs for cancer. Uh, It was incredibly cool to be doing this in yeast for a bunch of reasons. Most companies do this using mice. 
And uh, the problem with mice is one that they make mouse antibodies, they don't make human antibodies. And also um, mice take a long time to grow relative to yeast. Uh, mice take several weeks to go through their uh, gestation process and yeast only takes two hours when it's happy. So you can make <laughs> a lot of yeast in a short amount of time and they're not, I mean, I think they're kind of cute, but it's not cute like a mouse that you have to eliminate at the end of your experiment. Uh, you can pour some yeast down the sink and you don't feel too, too bad about it. So a lot of advantages to this platform. You know, when I started, it was really just an idea. We hadn't quite figured out the process and how even it was going to work. And uh, I think that that sort of startup culture is now actually super relevant to my work with Heritage Radio because you just have to sort of envision something that like may or may not exist at the time that you're going to do it and think like, well, this, this could be a thing and it could be successful and we're only going to know if we try. And then there was a lot of like, here's, you know, mountains and mountains of totally new types of data that we have no idea how to organize and put together. And so you wind up, um, it's sort of in the situation of like, okay, well, now my thing is I'm going to learn how to be a programmer and I'm going to learn how to write macros in Excel, which means that I'm going to spend like three months crying into my computer and like <laughs> banging my head on the desk. But like, I'm so happy I did that because now I emerged and, you know, like yesterday I was uh, Excel wizarding through a bunch <laughs> of uh, membership donor database stuff. And I just was so happy. I was like, oh, this is such a breeze, you know, and you just <laughs> think like there's a lot of humility in being like, well, I don't know how to do this, but neither does anybody else or maybe somebody on the Internet knows. So let's look it up and we're going to like get through and and find our way. And, um, and this job was just so cool because, uh, you know, it was venture funded and they had a really, really great company culture. They, they tried to be very Google-esque in providing a ton of benefits for employees and a really, really tight culture. And um, it was just a, a great group of people to work with and people who are so smart and brave and, and just cunning with the technology that they put together. And it's really cool. So... From this, I want to know, do you think there's a, a startup a character or personality? Like if you're, if you want to work in a, a startup, are there certain um, character traits that you need to have and how do you cultivate those? Um, I think you have to be ready to face failure a lot. Um, and whether you start off ready or you are beaten down over time. Uh, I'm not sure that I went into it with that mentality other than that experience with organic chemistry where I was just uh, completely defeated. Um, you know, I, I don't think of myself as being a risk taker. I, I sometimes like have a quiet little dream of like, oh, maybe I'll start a company or, and then as soon as I think about trying to finance something like that or, or the risks that you take when you're starting something completely brand new, my sort of instinct is like, that's not my personality. But as being part of a team that is building something, you sort of have to learn to embrace failure because, and you know, it, it actually comes maybe a little bit out of my science training, which is that a negative result in an experiment is still a result. You still learn something, even if everything goes completely wrong, you learn, you learn, okay, I didn't set up my experiment correctly. Or you learn, sometimes you learn, I had a contaminant that infected everything and I have to start over, but now I know I have to do these things differently in my process. Um, or it sounds like a fantastic background um, from which to evaluate like the job that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And 
instead of seeing failure like is an sort of like an input and it is it, it, yeah it doesn't mean anything except that did not work let's try something else mm-hmm. which i think is a spectacular way to look at something that doesn't work you move on it's not like it's not an emotion if like your yeast cells went black or and in science you have to document that Mm -hmm. like if you don't it's actually super unethical and it would be you know professionally a very poor decision to do that when we're all trying to make something together so you have a whole culture where you and everybody else in the lab are writing down and reporting like hey I failed you have to stand up at lab meeting in front of all of your colleagues and be like well this happened but then you know you you all learn from that you hopefully spare some other people from going through the same failure and so it becomes a little less about like you unless you really screwed something up which does happen um, but more about you know how do we get better and uh, so that I think applies like throughout life and you know just kind of learning to take a hit and keep going or pivot. And And what about the culture? Because you were talking about a great culture. And and I have to say, having worked in amazing cultures and then some really bankrupt cultures, aside from that oft said, and I believe, you know, the fish rotting from the top, like if the leader is not generous or not invested in people or invested more in outcome than process, like that's a challenge. But did they do something in particular that made that, I mean, and aside from free food, right? There's so much free food and Um, beer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Was there something that made that culture special that like maybe you try to replicate um, with a heritage team? There were, there were a number of things. I think um, the biggest takeaway from that experience was really about celebrating your successes and about showing appreciation. So we had a, a number of different ways that we did that. Um, obviously, coming from venture-funded startup to a nonprofit is a little different as far as the resources that we can put to this, but I think it's actually more similar than people might think. Um, you know, one thing we did was... Um, actually, this is probably my favorite. Every time we hit a milestone, um, whatever whatever that would be, whether it was our first dollar or first successful experiment setup, or you know, ultimately like first deal with a partner, um, we started with the tiniest size bottle that they make of Veuve Clicquot, and <laughs> um, you know, so at first, like we had, I think that's like a it's like a split probably. Mil. Yeah, it's yeah. a teeny teeny little guy, and we all shared it. And then every time we hit a milestone, we would get a bigger and bigger and bigger bottle. And by the time I left, there was one that came in an enormous coffin. I don't remember the size of the Magnum that it was, but I think it was like 13 liters. I mean, it was it was uh, really spectacular. And by then the company had grown and we had 30 something people to share this with. But it was still like more than we could drink. And we had to get some nerds together to figure out how to siphon it out of the bottle because (laughs) nobody could actually pour out of this thing. Um, But that was just, you know, something that I've like carried over here um, is a a culture of celebrating with champagne or with treats um, whenever we have a big milestone. Also, um, you know, just telling people when you really appreciate them and their time and something that they've done. I mean, Adam, we used to have the ability to give somebody a gift card. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could give out $100 gift cards when somebody had done something where you really appreciated them. Um, celebrating birthdays, little small things. Um, today, today you celebrated just... Um, this day of the week and a birthday with donuts. So I thought that was that was <laughs> awesome, and I was so happy to be able to, um, you know, actually I couldn't wait for it 
to do it properly. Like there was no birthday singing. I'm like, can I have the donuts now? No, we were were starving. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's something that, you know, I just think it's really important. And even if we are like setting aside a little bit of our small nonprofit budget to do these things, I do think it's really important and it really helps me stay motivated. And I think that, you know, our team enjoys that. And obviously we all love food and drink here. So making celebrations kind of oriented around that is just a natural thing to do. And, you know, when you work in nonprofit, you, uh, you, you may like be taking a pay cut if you're coming from industry. And so, it's really important to make the day-to-day feel special in, in other ways and to celebrate people. And, um, you know, for me, that's the best thing about working here as the team that, that we get to be around every single day. You have a great team. I want to hear how um, you got from um, yeast <laughs> to heritage. And after that, we're going to take a quick break. Okay. Um, so basically, my whole plan of staying in my biotech job for one year uh, was an epic fail because uh, I got I got really into it. You know, I worked with amazing people. It was fascinating. You know, we were essentially, um, you know, making we were making life saving drugs, but it wasn't like working for big pharma. It's not like working for the man. You're working for really smart people in a small company. And anyway, there were so many great perks and I was just feeling every day like very motivated. So I wound up staying there for six years. Not my plan. Um, so yeah, anyway, during that time, one. it's it's a lot more than one. Yeah. Uh, during that time, my husband was also working for a startup. Uh, then my boyfriend, we met on Match.com while I was working in the tech company. <laughs> and uh, he had to travel a lot for work. Uh, so in so doing, he racked up a, a lot of hotel points and airline miles. So we had sort of this this dream where we were going to like quit our jobs and escape. And I still knew I wanted to do something with food. And I just couldn't quite bite the bullet and, and make that big change to go into the unknown from this very cushy job that I had. So uh, ultimately, we vested our stock options, we quit our jobs, and we set off to travel the world for a year while I figured out what I was going to do. And uh, so while we were on the road, I applied to graduate programs in food studies and um, wound up being accepted to the NYU master's program. And so I started there in 2014. Um, and then during my like second semester of school, I, um, had applied for the Julia Child Fellowship in food writing, which they offer to NYU students and place them at different food media organizations around New York. And so I was placed at Heritage Radio Network. So I, um, was really excited and I worked here two days a week, uh, for a semester and, uh, got to know a lot of the hosts, got to know the programming. I was really excited about it. And then I went back to grad school and I finished, um, I did my research project on some very analytical things about using food stamps for CSAs in New York and uh, looking at like economic impacts for farmers, really thought I was going to do kind of a policy research kind of job. And uh, then right when I was graduating, I got a call from Erin Fairbanks, who was the executive director of HRN at that time. And she told me that there was an opening. And so I was all over it. So it did kind of take me by surprise. It wasn't that I knew I was going to go for a career in food media But um, because of the work that HRN is doing around sustainability and awareness and really changing the food system, um, I was I was all over it. So really, really excited that I wound up here. And the whole thing was such a whirlwind from leaving that job to coming to grad school. And then and then here we are. You are seem to be the mistress of uh, taking the break to figure things out and then amazing things happen. (laughs) 
So we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk all about heritage. And I'm sure all of you who want to know, like, how do you get a podcast? How does heritage work? What is food radio? What is nonprofit food radio? Um, Katie has done so much to shape this incredible network. I can't wait to share that all with you. Be right back. Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium, to galas in the renovated Palm House, and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lily Pool Terrace. Chef Rob Newton and Chef de Cuisine Morgan Jarrett offer warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. Today, my guest is Katie Mosman Wadler, who is the executive director of Heritage Radio Network. And when I first met you, Katie, you were that two day a week intern. And I still remember um, getting the call from Aaron, who was then the executive director, saying, you know, someone new is taking over. And I'm like, oh, you know, who's that going to be? Someone from NPR, or someone from, you know, someone with this deep, deep background in either food or um, radio or not-for-profit. And instead, it was this person who's just so like determined, excited, and you know, open to transformation. And that was you. Surprise. <laughs> surprise. <laughs> well, imagine my surprise when one of the first calls that I was to make in my new job was to you to talk about your new show. <laughs> right. I was uh, just a little intimidated to make that call. Um, that's, that's so sweet. Uh, right, because in order to get a show, we were talking about like, what does it take to get a show? Mm-hmm. You actually have to have an idea. And I remember sitting down and I, you know, I had talked to Aaron who had greenlit so many shows and I really wanted to be on Heritage. And I really, having had 21 years, you know, well, 30 years really in media one way or another, being able to have an idea and then put it on paper or on the web or, I mean, I can still obviously control social, but, um, you know, wanting to be able to have a voice and to continue to address issues that I care about and really wanting to take it to radio uh, because I love people so much and I love the conversation of it. And frankly, I hate writing. Like I, when I was growing up, all I wanted to do was write. And then I realized I wasn't really very good at it. And I was like, wow, with audio, you can get all the good stuff of writing, which is stories, but without all the bad stuff, which is putting the words together and then editing them and making them make sense. So uh, in order to do this podcast, I just wrote down all the people that I wanted to talk to. And I realized that they were all women, um, and they all inspired me. And that what I really wanted to talk about is this thing that has obsessed me since I was 23, really, which is the notion of, um, like, how do you figure out what to do next? It's so hard. And your story follows the exact path. And so when you took the job and we got to talk about it, you greenlit me, which was really (laughs) so much fun and great. Um, when you 
took this job not having a whole lot of experience in areas related, although having worked here, what was the first and most important thing for you to tackle, which could be like in your own mind, in at Heritage? Like, what was it? That's a great question. There were there were a lot of things swirling around where I thought you know there, there's a lot to get a handle on. Um, luckily, I had been uh, lucky to overlap with Aaron for a couple of months and. Um, you know, getting to know all of the operations that we had going on. But, you know, such a big thing is, um, you know, we have 35 shows every week. So really, um, it was important to me to try to really, as quickly as I could, get to know all of the hosts, get to know their shows, and, um, you know, figure out really in in this whole web of everything that we're doing, what is kind of the essence of Heritage Radio Network. And, you know, we're lucky to have a, a pretty amazing mission statement that guides us, um, which is that we are here to improve equity, sustainability, and deliciousness in the food system by changing the way that eaters think about food. But that's also pretty broad. So really just getting a handle on like, what is the spirit of this thing and who are the people who are making it happen um, and trying to just get really immersed in that. And then there's just all the practical, right? I mean, um, I think as executive director, there's fundraising involved, right? Because it's a Mm not-for-profit. And there's the, um, you know, green-lighting shows, which you hadn't done. And then there's the, um, I mean, there's running an organization. Uh, There's the website. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, because in your life you have studied and become an expert in things, how did you approach becoming an expert in all these areas that you didn't know? Um, you know, I think that, um, or do, you for, might not like for, like for all the best intentions that uh, that I might have had about like, oh, I'm going to carefully learn all of these different aspects of my job. Uh, in a, a practical nature, there really it feels like there are about five to ten fires going on at any moment of any day that have to be put out. And I think um, mostly it's you know the reality of like kind of being a small team and being a nonprofit is just like you have to prioritize and you have to let some things go. And when something is like a big priority, you will learn a lot about it really quickly by necessity. And uh, and then if you do have the miracle of free time, then you can go and do some research about something else. But, um, you know, it's it's pretty fast paced around here. Um, you know, we, we have to manage everything from fundraising and making sure that we're keeping the lights on to, you know, managing staff, managing, you know, around 50 hosts, keeping track of our intern team, running a, a good internship program, um, making sure that all the studio equipment is working and that, you know, with chair breaks, we have to get a new chair. And so you're doing like on any given day, it's like fix the printer, um, you know, like go through the pilot of a new show, um, buy lunch for a meeting and then like give a sales pitch to a potential sponsor and then go to an event and schmooze all the people and then, um, come in and the printer's probably broken again. (laughs) And, uh, you have 3000 emails that are overdue. And also you need a new database for your donor management system. And it's just like, it's always, Uh, a lot of things at the same time. So I'm not sure that I would say I'm an expert by any stretch of the imagination in food radio yet, but uh, I think that we are all doing a really good job of keeping on top of it and having a vision for how we want to grow and trying to 
while dealing with all the day-to-day maintenance, um, really carve out some time to prioritize how we want to make the station better and grow our audience and reach the most people that we can with our messaging, which I think is one of the most important things that we can all be talking about is is changing the food system for the better. So one of the things that you just launched was a meet and three. First, because I'm working on like a name of a, a pro- I'm working on a name for a project. Naming is the worst thing in the whole world. And in fact, when I named speaking broadly, and I I feel like I texted you at eleven o'clock at night <laughs> the, the day before we were supposed to go live because I had uh, wanted the show to be called Broadly Speaking, and I had had a logo designed for Broadly Speaking, and I I swear I had Googled Broadly Speaking, but it turned out I had only checked it out like on Instagram, Facebook, and social media, but I hadn't actually, I think, honest to God, I hadn't actually Googled and it turned out there is another podcast or there's another show called. <laughs> so shout speaking. out to Broadly Speaking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thanks, guys. And so um, and so on that, that night, I uh, texted a bunch of friends. I reached out to the designer. I reached out to you and I'm like, oh, my God, what do I do? So naming is so so important. And so we just, in the case of broadly speaking, we switch it to speaking broadly, which I like equally. And because the, um, the icon for the show is like a, a, um, a megaphone, you could actually switch those two words really easily. So the designer did it overnight and boom, um, speaking broadly was born. But how did you get to meet in three for your show? I have to say, this one was all Kat. Kat Johnson's our communications director, and she is awesome. And she is, in so many cases, really the creative and design brains between, but, but behind the face of Heritage. And so um, Kat's from Alabama, and uh, she immediately was like, as we were talking about the, the structure of the show, which is like, we want to have sort of a cross between maybe the daily and up first. We want to have some deep dives, but we also want to have these short updates that are snappy and interesting. And so we thought, okay, well, maybe we'll have like a one big one and, and maybe two or three shorter ones. So she was immediately like, meet and three. And <laughs> I didn't even know what a meet and three was until a couple of years ago when I went to Nashville because... Uh, I'm from Maine and we don't have those. <laughs> um, so meat and three is a barbecue restaurant where you get a meat and three sides, uh, three vegetables. Even the vegetables are usually like mac and cheese and hush puppies. <laughs> it is funny that those are called vegetables, but yeah. I guess, guess. So, so yeah, credit for their name goes all to Kat. She's brilliant. And she does. Like, and she got it like logo that. Designs. That's amazing. And, yeah. So we, we actually have had the name for a bunch of months where we were kind of working on the concept of the show. Um, and uh, really, like, build the structure kind of around that. So now that you've built your own show, uh, for those who want to create a podcast, and I talk to so many people who are like, I'm just going to podcast, what do you recommend? Like, what is the most important thing to keep in mind as you're developing a podcast? Yeah, so we get a lot of pitches. Um, You know, the most, I think, most essential thing is getting a topic or a, a theme or a, a, you know, a genre that is specific enough that you will not be drowned out in a sea of people doing the exact same thing. Um, you know, to, to say, I want to do a podcast about food is great, but really what about food? What is it? How do you guide yourself? Also, uh, you know, what, what I think um, happens very easily is that the time in an interview goes by so quickly. So if you don't have 
a focus on what you're going to talk about, it can be really rambling and it's hard for people to know what they're getting into with a a show that doesn't have a, a specific concept. And so, you know, we get a lot of people who are like, I want to do a show and I want to talk to my friends about food. And you're like, okay, great. But like, we got to get more narrow than that. And um, so I think as I've like gone through hearing a lot of different pitches and and then like going through the process of piloting and then ultimately being part of the committee that decides what shows are going to come on Heritage, that would be the most important thing. Just find your niche and make sure that you have, you know, it's kind of like the lean startup, have your blue ocean strategy, have that that space that that is going to be just you and you won't be competing with the thousands of other podcasts that are starting up every day. And that seems like an impossible task though, right? Because there's thousands of podcasts that are starting up it's every true. day. Yeah. Um, and in terms of being heard in that, um, it's more like an, like the dead sea. There's all these floating bodies all around and everybody's <laughs> floating, you know, it's, yeah. it's good. So, yeah. uh, the dead sea really isn't dead at all, but, um, how do you, recommend to people that they stand out? Like if you were giving advice to someone who's launching on Heritage, like mm-hmm. what do you tell them to do? So yeah, launching a podcast is not enough because it will just sit there with all of the other podcasts that are being launched. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of like infantry style, you know, first you just need to make sure that people listen to it. And if you are listening to this show and you are my friend or family, you will have gotten several emails and calls and texts (laughs) from me being like, have you listened to the show? Please listen to the show. Please listen to my show. So there's a lot of, um, you know, even the people who love you are busy and uh, the show isn't going anywhere if it doesn't get downloaded and listened to. So, uh, you know, finding sort of setting aside that time and energy in the very, very beginning to ensure that you get a chunk of subscriptions right off, I think is probably the most important thing that that you can do. And I think that's the most important thing that we've done so far with Meet and 3. And, um, you know, beyond that, you you need to kind of consistently show up and keep pushing that out because there are so many options. And so if you're not at the forefront of people's social media feeds and if you're not consistently checking in then it's really hard to emerge and to grow that base and you know once you're a little more established and you have subscribers then you know it definitely becomes easier um, and then it will spread more through word of mouth people use that wonderful share button from apple podcasts more and more and uh, and then you're there but in those very beginning weeks Uh, I think it's just that you have to um, ask everyone you know to download it. (laughs) It's not not like the most Mm -hmm. elegant solution, but I think it's the most effective thing you can do. Right. It's the the friends and family effect. Mm -hmm. Um, And, okay, so Meet and 3 takes issues that are important like that week Mm -hmm. uh, in the food world. What are you focused on in the next couple of weeks? Do you plan far ahead? We're trying. Yeah. So the way that we're doing the show is, um, you know, it's weekly and we're trying to be as timely as possible, but also uh, realistic with our team and what what we can actually do. Plus, we have a lot of stories that we really want to tell. And so we've focused every episode around a theme and the themes are very loose. We're doing a lot of wordplay with the theme. Um, The episode that came out last Friday was pork. And so that includes everything from how to cook the perfect bacon for your BLT to a story about the Chinese pork tariffs to the term pork as used in a legislative context. So what is like pork barrel politics and getting into that a little bit with the farm bill coming out. Um, So the themes are are loosely tied, but we do have a couple planned out that we're working on and then breaking news sort of gets slotted in as we get closer to the release date. So the episode that's coming out 
Um, on Friday is going to be our red tape special. And um, then we're also working on uh, one called Taking a Stand. So as you can imagine, those, are, those themes get, get stretched and played with a little bit. Um, but we do have uh, a, a rough plan. And then we have a lot of issues coming up that we're really, um, we know we want to talk about. And so a lot of the themes will be dictated by what's happening with Donald Trump and what's happening with the Farm Bill and uh, international trade related to food. Uh, we're also talking a lot about school lunch and hunger. And uh, a huge theme that, that we're making part of the show is, is about representation and um, diversity and equity in the food system. So that'll be a, a consistent theme as well. So the show's 15 minutes, mm -hmm. which I think is just really interesting because my show tends to be like, I just can't stop talking because I'm so, well, I can't stop having other people talk because I'm so interested in whatever they have to say. So how did you choose 15 minutes? I mean, part of it, I imagine, is practical, right? But um, that seems so short to me. Yeah, so the idea behind the show is we really wanted there to be an option for people who did not have a ton of time and for it to be something that would be sort of an easy listening entree to Heritage Radio Network because we do have enough shows that you could listen to podcasts for almost 40 hours a week. And uh, we thought, okay, that can be a little overwhelming. And what we're really aiming to do is to put together a quick update. It's very casual. You can listen to it on your way home on Friday. You can listen to it during your weekend. And it's not a huge commitment, but we want this to be a, a sort of channel for discovering other shows on the network. Like in episode one, we featured you and your interview with Valerie Lomas. And um, so we're working with all of our hosts to get them to be part of the production process. And our goal is that by listening to this 15 minute show, you're going to discover all of these other new favorite food podcasts on the network. And then you'll sort of start building your week around that. But we just wanted it to be something easy to start off with. That sounds like um, a really great plan. As, as you know, the, the, this show, um, I'm always looking for mentors and people who have in, inspired you on your path. And I like sticking to the food world because there's so many inspiring people in the food world. Although I imagine somewhere along the way you might be inspired by a microbiologist or, <laughs> or someone in that year of travel that you did. But is there someone in the food world and you look to them uh, as someone who's inspired you and why? A woman. Yeah, so I, I have to give a shout out to Erin Fairbanks here. Um, so Erin was my predecessor as executive director of HRN. Um, you know, I, I owe so much to her um, for um, really having the belief in me when, when I hadn't even ever imagined that this would kind of be my path. She is amazing. I mean, she's a chef. She also, um, you know, has worked at farm camp with Flying Pigs Farm. And, um, oh, I hope that I got that right. Now I'm having a moment of doubt. But, um, you know, she's done so much hands-on in the food world, but also um, as the leader of a food media organization has done the most amazing job of connecting people and building um, ways to relate to stories and, um, you know, really, really building this thing from the ground up and, um, you know, just really creating something that was so special and then being so generous with her time and energy and connections. And, um, you know, as when she told me that she was stepping down, she... And I worked really closely for three months together where she really like carefully handed over the reins, left everything 
in a completely energized and like effective state. And um, I just think that she is an amazing person. Everybody knows her. Everybody loves her. She's so well connected. And, um, you know, I really admire how so many women in the food world have done this amazing job of being generous and helping and lifting other women up. And um, I, I think Erin is just like the prime example of that. Good shout out to Erin, because I believe without Erin, I wouldn't be here either. <laughs> so, um, And with that, we are going to conclude this episode of Speaking Broadly. Um, so where can people find you, Katie? Oh, well, please follow us at Heritage underscore radio. And um, that would be the best place to get updates on the whole network and Meet in 3 and everything that we're doing in the office. Uh, and you can also find me on Facebook. I'm Katie Mosman on Facebook. And uh, I'm really, really excited to get to chat with you, Dana, today. And um, I hope that everyone will check out Meet in 3 and keep in touch with us. That's great. You know where to find me at FW Scout on Instagram or Twitter. And like Katie said, this is an amazing, incredible network. So check out HRN and find more shows that you love um, and subscribe to this one. Have a great week and we'll be back next week. Oh, before I go, though, I need to thank um, Garlin, who helps me um, with my social presence. <laughs> keeps me social and um vitor thank you so much for being a great engineer today and patient as we start a little late um have a great week see you next week thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.